Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Russell Chandler. Russell, if I were you in this day and age, I would just abstain, abstain, abstain. <laughs> so I had three options there. It was good. That and more. But before that, I want to let you know that Play Me from CBC Podcast is now proud to present a new series, The Show Must Go On, featuring exciting productions from some of North America's most acclaimed creators for the stage. Sit back and experience everything from chilling thrillers to gut-wrenching dramas to irreverent comedies. Each month, experience the exhilaration of the theater right from the comfort of your own home. The theaters have closed, but the show will go on. You can subscribe to Play Me wherever you get your podcasts. And I have so much love <laughs> to share with our Patreon members. We have new members Linda Pratt, Dallas, and Katie Stroud. We are so thankful. It does really help us out, and we really, really do need that help right now. We're in a, you know, going through a rough phase right here and trying to stay afloat. We've got a lot of balls that we're juggling, trying to keep in the air and working as hard as we possibly can here. And our Patreon members just mean the absolute world to us. Now, we're going to soon be uploading an interview with Ray Christian, a new video check-in from me where for about 45 minutes I just talk into the camera about how I'm doing right now, uh, an interview with one of our favorite Patreon patrons, Jen Grippa, and uh, bonus stories. Every week there's a bonus story. This week it's going to be one by Alan Landver. And it sounds a little something like this. Brent runs down the mountain with his double extra large sweatshirt. The guy wore the baggiest clothing in the freaking world. And he starts putting the fire out with his sweatshirt. Dude, I'm going to put this out. I'm going to put this out. His whole scrawny body is doing this thing. And I'm just like, this guy's insane. He's absolutely going to fucking die. Doesn't die. You know, there are various reasons that stories end up on Patreon as opposed to the free podcast. One of the reasons for putting Alan's there this week is that he is reworking that story. He really needs, feels the need to expand on it. Might even do a memoir or a one-man show on it, but it's fascinating to hear that first jumping into that territory. So become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. And if you are already a patron, please do consider upping the amount that you're donating to us each month. And if you're interested in doing a one-time donation, you can always just reach out to me at kevin at risk-show.com. Remember, the patrons also get free access to our live stream shows. So there's so many perks at patreon.com slash risk. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is DCS Lefty behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Roles, situations where people had taken up different roles and then maybe realized they didn't quite fit in them. Holy cow, my friends. <laughs> I'm recording this on Sunday, April 26th, and what, <laughs> what a week last week was. I'm still, I'm just pretty exhausted from it all. Uh, the week began with the New York Times writing about how successful our live streams have been. We were featured in a feature article called Can You Make Money in Live Comedy Right Now? Some producers say yes. And the last five or six paragraphs are all about risk and how we're an example of success with this sort of thing they even show a picture this was our the new york times writer attended the la show the first you know one that we did for the la time zone uh, that david crab helped all the storytellers prepare for and they show a picture of the zoom feed where all of us are showing off our pets in the q a after the live stream let me tell you something. We did another one of these live streams just last night, Saturday, and I think it, it may have been the best yet. These just keep getting better. I'm so inspired. I am so inspired by these live streams. Now, the next one is May 1st. It is Friday, May 1st at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. I really want to sincerely ask all of you to tell your friends about these live streams, to spread the word that people should really be checking these out. You know, at this point, people know Zoom. <laughs> at this point, people are becoming pretty familiar with that platform. But if you can share with your friends, look, here is a show that is going to make you feel much more connected. Here is a show that's going to be super entertaining, a little bit jaw-dropping, emotional. You're going to feel like you're with a community where people are sharing the most remarkable things that have happened in their lives, and these shows are just an experience. You have to come to experience it, and we want more and more and more people to show up, and our continued existence depends on the audiences for these live streams increasing. So please show up to the next one, May 1st, 9 p.m. Uh, that's 9 p.m. Eastern time. Every time you go to risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets. Some other crazy fun things that happened this past week. If you're a fan of my old sketch comedy group, The State, we redid one of our classic sketches, Porcupine Racetrack, a musical sketch, and I appeared wearing only a leather jockstrap and a leather harness with my riding crop and my silver dildo. <laughs> it's quite, quite a sight to see. 
<laughs> Look up, we were in Rolling Stone. And finally, the latest super, super, super fun thing that's happened is that I'm now on this app called Cameo. Uh, have you heard of this? It's where public figures and or celebrities or whatnot, people who have fans, can make little personalized videos for their fans via this Cameo.com or via the app Cameo that you can put on your phone if you want. Anyway, you go there, you look for either Kevin Allison or the Kevin Allison and you'll find me. And I've made five of them so far for fans. I've made a few of them that are absolutely ridiculously silly and a few of them that were actually, you know, completely sincere and heartfelt. And I love doing this. So come find me on Cameo and I will make you a little personalized video saying hello just to you or get one as a gift for a friend. Let's get to the stories. We have a loaded episode this week. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Russell Chandler. Before that, a little something from Tracy Starin making her second appearance on the podcast. But before that, one of these recordings from our L.A. live stream that we did on April 10th. Now, when I say L.A., it means the whole cast was what was going to be the live show in L.A. in front of an audience, but we just took that cast and put them on one of our Zoom live stream shows. So you can hear how what we do with these is we allow the storytellers to have their audio on so that you can hear some reactions to the stories at the beginning and the end. You know, myself, JC, and the other storytellers, all our mics are on. So you can hear us clapping a little bit or reacting occasionally. But I've been really fascinated to see how that live theater energy still comes through from uh, when people are sharing stories right into the camera of their laptop or whatever. It, it's really, really unexpectedly special how much you really do feel like you're talking to hundreds of people who are gathered there to share an intimate moment with you. It's quite something else. So here we are with Jana Fisher, who you can find at janafisher.com. Here she is now with a story we call Sakea's Game. Hey, thank you. I was given special permission to keep the headphones in because they're AirPods because I'm pretentious. <laughs> I wonder what else you can do with those fingers. This guy Sakea says that to me. He's in my hunting party, and I think that's what you call flirting. He must be taken with my tall figure and my white blonde high ponytail and the delicate spell work I do with my delicate hands. I look over his broad barbarian shoulders and wonder what it would feel like to have his rough beard against my lips. is not flirting with me exactly, but with my high elf wizard avatar, Aleva Fireweaver. <laughs> it's 2002, I'm playing EverQuest. It's this online role-playing game where you create fantastical characters and you go on quests and hunts to level them up. 
I've gotten really into this game ever since my dad's job as a preacher took us from Ohio to Florida. I'm in eighth grade. I can't really go anywhere. And, you know, being a Leba lets me have a social life. Here, I'm just like the weird Christian new kid, but a Leba is confident and glamorous and I'm shy and I have bad hair. Sakea keeps telling me what he'd do to me down to like taking off whatever it is a high elf wears under her robes and I I'm so overwhelmed by this like warm rush that I just ask him to stop but I can't stop thinking about his digitally calloused hands so the next day I message him hey do you want to group up it's easier for me to find one when I'm with a tank. That's like the video game equivalent of asking if he can help me study. He says, I woke up with a smile on my face thinking of you. I'm like grinning at my computer screen, but I also have this sinking feeling in my stomach. Like he thinks he's flirting with Aleba. There's no way he'd be talking to me in real life. So I just like rip the bandaid off. Hey. I have to tell you something. I'm 13. My mouth is like totally dry. I wait for what feels like forever for him to respond. And then finally he says, wow, you must be really mature. I'm 22 and you're way cooler than most girls my age. I'm so relieved he still wants to talk to me. And then he says, can I see a photo of you? If I don't send him a photo, he's gonna think that I'm like a 40-year-old dude named Roy, but if I do send him a photo, I don't want him to think that I'm a kid, so I scan this photo where I'm wearing this tight lavender tank top that shows off these A-cups that just came in, and he sends me back all these smiley faces and says he can't stop looking at my body, and then he sends me back this photo of this young man in black and white like he's posing for prom but shirtless and he's like sorry I took this for an old girlfriend I'm like don't be embarrassed you seem handsome and then he says can I call you I'm home alone so I say okay I can't breathe thinking about like What's his voice going to sound like? Is it going to be like deep and gravelly like his avatar? <laughs> I pick up on the first ring and he says, hello, beautiful. He has this sexy accent that's like half Australian and half British. And he starts telling me about his real life, which is like, almost as cool as EverQuest. He lives in Paris because he'd studied abroad there in high school and then moved back as an adult. And then I tell him, I'm a preacher's kid living in suburban Florida. And he says, wow, I love that. In the movies, it's always the preacher's daughter who goes wild. He seems so worldly to me, but he makes me feel sexy and mature and we're talking every day, and I feel like we're equals, except sometimes he's describing a scenario, and he references this body part I've like never heard of, and I'm too scared to look up. It's called something like, I think it's called the clitoris. 
but I'm so lonely. I'm like thinking about Sakea every day, like all the places he's traveled to, the scenarios he describes, when we're finally get to be together. We're talking like every day when I'm home alone for a few months and then he says he loves me and I say it back. And then I ask him what I need to know about being in love for the first time. He says, you never forget your first love. Mine was this French girl named Aurélie. I dated my semester abroad and I moved back to France as an adult to try to find her, but she was already married. I feel glad knowing that since Sakea is my first love, I will never forget him. I'm so excited about being in love that I tell a few of my Ohio friends and I think they'll be excited for me, but they start gossiping and one of their moms overhears them talking and she tells my mom and my mom confronts me in the kitchen about the older guy online who's like my boyfriend with this like horrified look on her face that I could even conceive of doing such a thing. And then she says, you have to tell me what happened. And I, I, so I confess to like a sanitized version of events, like thinking she'll sympathize with me. I mean, I'm in love, but my parents have been hearing about all these crazy stories about old men who meet young girls in chat rooms and lure them to meetings in McDonald's parking lots where the girls end up dead in the dumpster. They say, I can't talk to Sakea anymore. I've never felt pain like this. It's like something's been ripped away, but I'm basically grounded forever. <laughs> I can't do anything. So I make a new plan for my life. I will move to Paris when I grow up, and then Sakea and I can actually be together. It'll be just like our EverQuest adventures. I will be tall by then, He'll be glamorous and protective and we'll explore new lands together. I start on this mission by taking French my freshman year of high school. I daydream about him every day in class and I miss him so much. But I haven't heard from him in a while. Obviously, I can't talk to him. So I do a search for his character's name and I find a forum where he's made some posts about barbarian gear. And... I see on his profile there that he, this is age as 27, not 22 as he told me. If he'd been lying about something that basic, maybe I am just an after-school special about the dangers of the internet. I've given my innocence and a permanent place in my heart to someone who played me for a fool. I don't have dreams for my life other than going to Paris, so I keep taking French when I get to college, and I make a plan to study in Paris one summer. I just feel like I have to get out of Florida because nobody here understands what I'm going through. The spring before I'm supposed to leave, I'm 19, and I'm sitting in my dorm room slouching when I'm looking at my computer and I see Sakea's name in my inbox. He says, I never stopped thinking about you.
respond to that? How am I supposed to dump years of anger and feelings into one email? So I, I write something like, I hate you, I love you, you wrecked my life, and I hit send. <laughs> and he writes back and says he never meant to hurt me, and all my anger just falls away. I guess like behind that, I'm still in love with him. Maybe you don't forget your first love. So I tell him I'm gonna be in Paris that summer with hope we can meet. I mean, I feel like if we meet, everything will make sense. Like whether he is my soulmate that I just met at the wrong time or maybe he's just a creep. But he says he can't because he's married with kids now. I get to Paris and it's more amazing than I'd ever dreamed. I am hosted by this sophisticated retired woman named Madame Boudoub and she has this hot rock climber grandson named Aurelien and he takes me out with his hot rock climber friends to a club on a boat on the Seine. It's so cool, like no one here cares if I'm from Florida or if I go to church or if my dad's a preacher, they just want me to enjoy life. But all I can do around this amazing city is look for Sakea's face. I'm emailing him every day, trying to convince him to meet up with me. And I'll ask him questions like, how could you have loved me knowing how young I was? And he'll say things like, you were just so different from other girls. It doesn't really help me make any sense of things. But... He's writing me from his work email, and there's an address in the signature. I have an idea. So I get on the metro, I ride it past this tourist-friendly part of the city I know now to this unfamiliar suburb, and I follow this address to this gray office building. And I'm shaking, like trying to take it all in, this place that Sakea goes in the three-dimensional world. And then I find a patch of grass where I can spit as if like physically expressing my anger in this place where he walks will somehow like cure me of this. I should probably pound down the door for my closure, get some answers, but I don't want to seem like a stalker. And besides it's Sunday when he'd be home with his kids. I guess when it comes down to it, I would rather keep the bittersweet fantasy of him than face the reality. So I leave Paris and I let go of the idea of meeting him. I moved to New York and I try to start a new life, but I still think about him sometimes and I look for him on social media, but his profile photos are pictures of icebergs. I turn 26 and I'm thinking about how I'm twice the age I was when I met him because everything I know is measured in a before and after. And then I get a notification from LinkedIn suggesting Sakea as a contact. And I click it and his profile shows a current photo. It's the first photo I've seen in 13 years. He looks the same, but there's gray streaks in his hair now, and the corners of his mouth are turned down. He looks sad, and I feel sorry for him.
I've heard all about his fantastic adventures traveling the world, and I know he has a good job and a family who loves him. And still, he was willing to use me when I was so young so he could escape his own life in a fantasy. This isn't the glamorous barbarian Sakaya. This is just some sad guy named Ben. Maybe I can be grateful that he showed me a world outside of my sheltered life, but know that he was just a catalyst and I don't need him. He might be the story of my life so far, but I still have time to write a new one. Thank you. I walked up the steps completely alone and paralyzed with fear. My whole life, I had had the good fortune of going to school with all the same kids. But when it came time to go to high school, everybody scattered. And so I faced that enormous, terrifying Gothic building all by myself. On the first day of school, there's no classes. You go to your homeroom and you get your program and take care of some administrative stuff and you go home. It's just a couple of hours. And so I found my classroom and I made my way through the chattering, excitable kids, all of whom seemed less afraid and more comfortable than I was. And I found a seat near the back next to the window. A little while later, I saw two tall, beautiful, blonde girls walk in. They were impeccably dressed. Their hair was done. They were beautifully made up. They looked like they just stepped off the cover of a magazine. I looked down at my own heavy metal t-shirt and high top sneakers and I thought, oh no, this look is not going to do for high school. And they took the two seats directly behind me and they started to talk quietly just to each other. I turned around a couple of times and tried to catch their eye, but they didn't notice me or they chose not to. And finally, I turned completely around in my chair and I addressed them directly. I said, hi, I'm Tracy, good morning. And they froze. They looked at each other and they looked at me and one of them sort of half smiled and barely whispered, hi. And then they went back to talking just to each other quietly. Rejected, I turned back around in my seat. My face felt hot and I didn't know whether I wanted to burst into tears or spontaneously combust or run out of the building and never return. I just knew I didn't want to be there anymore. And I thought about what the next three years of school was going to be like. Was it going to be torture and torment with the popular kids and the beautiful people just going to make my life a living hell. I was in my own John Hughes movie and I wondered could I just spend the next few years with my head down doing my work and escape torment. I just wanted to get to college. I spent the whole weekend thinking about it. I came back on Monday our first full day of classes and our homeroom teacher had us each go around and stand up and introduce ourselves and say something about ourselves and there was a momentary delay when he got to the two girls behind me as they looked at each other and they looked at him and they looked back at each other and one of them stood up 
and she barely whispered her name and she sat back down. Turns out they weren't snubbing me. They barely spoke English. They were as afraid of me as I was of them. Nobody was there to torment anybody. And it turned out we all had a pretty good year. In the early 90s, I took a, an internship in Boston at the UMass Boston radio station in the, in the bowels of the big library of this little tiny radio station. So I was there for the summer, went back after college and was getting some work as a, as a playwright. But um, for money, I ended up at this uh, deli in Brookline. It's like a kosher deli. And uh, look, I'm, a, I'm from the Midwest, and so not super assertive, never aggressive dude on the dating scene. So like when you move out to the big city, that doesn't really put you in a really good position for getting dates as such. Because in the big city in Boston, you know, like you gotta have, it's more like a shark and that's not my vibe. More of a dolphin, I guess, whatever the f <laughs> A seal maybe. So I was alone for a couple of years and that kind of bummed me out, but um, that's as it may be, whatever the fuck, I'm working on my art, doing some playwriting, whatever. <laughs> but I'm at the deli, and one day, in through the door, walks this young woman with an older woman, and she had this long, straight red hair, and what can only be described, honestly, as like, um, naughty librarian glasses. <laughs> and and she, she sits down at the table, and they order some hot saline in the, in the falafel platter, and some, um, you know, like one piece of course, like, there must be like her work supervisor, whatever. But like, when I saw her, something in my heart like did a little flip, and like I could imagine myself leaping over that counter, like knocking off some of these like kosher knishes or whatever, like bounding across the floor in a completely anti-Midwestern way, throwing myself to my knees in front of her and saying in the most declarative and like quasi-Shakespearean way, I want to go on a date with you. <laughs> I, I didn't do that. I mean, uh, but she, there was this crazy chewy vibe between us and I get some at points she was looking over at me and she needed more celery soda and then she wanted more ice in there and somehow I'm like I'm prattling about I don't know what but I'm like dropping the ice cubes clunk, 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 as slowly as I can one at a time into this cup so I can just like bask in this crazy vibe that I'm getting it's it's intoxicating like I feel great right and um so then she's over there, and at some point she's about to go, and there's something weird going on at the table with her hands, and then, and then she's gone. I'm like, whew. To say that she was buxom might be going too far, but she had what, it, what my friend's mom would have described as a go figure. Wow, go figure. Um, so she goes, and um, then I go to clean her the table, and I pick up the plate, and there's a little scrap of paper on, underneath the plate, and the scrap of paper has seven digits on it, which, if you might remember in the 90s, that's all you needed to make a phone call back in the 90s. <laughs> and I'm super fucking psyched, right? <laughs> so this is gonna sound corny. I still maintain that it's clever. You'll just groan, so just get ready to groan. It's like, I call the number, and I say, hey, listen, um, you left your phone number here. Like, I'm sure you're gonna want it back, so um, it's not a good idea to walk around. Come back at eight, I'll have it safe for you behind the counter, and then like I'll just give it back to you. Well, thank you, all right. So she comes back, and I present her with a bouquet of kosher knishes. And that's how I meet Anna. 
And it was like it's a it started out like there's a whole journey that began right there. We end up walking around Brookline over the Longfellow Bridge, wandering around um, Harvard Square, like all night. And the evening ended with what I will deliciously describe as a very promising kiss. Thank you. Um, and we spent all of our time together after that. It was great, and we had a lot of fun. And she had this crate in the wintertime. She had this fuzzy, like, brimmed hat, like a, like a fisherman's hat with the brim all around it, but it was tiger print. And I don't know why it made you laugh so hard, but she would pull it down of her eyes as if, like, and then she'd go, she'd pretend like she'd suddenly been struck blind, like, what? I can't see. I can't see. I mean, I guess I can't do it justice, but it fucking made me laugh every fucking time. Super funny. She knew several languages. She was a paint, like a, like a visual artist, and then she did some, um, like, Martha Graham-influenced uh, modern dance. But fucking funny. And we had, you know, I'll say this. Like, I came from the school of do everything under the sun up to, but not including, like, uh, penis and vagina sex. Like, that's, like, like, up to, and then, like, you kind of look over the edge. Like, it's, you know, it's good, like, kind of lean in that direction, but, like... But everything else was like, oh, hey, it's great, you know? I, um, and we had a lot of fun that way. Um, I, mean, I remember walking around, she would, you know, walking home from going to these dinners or whatever, and she'd be wearing these long skirts, and then without making any motion or any word, um, like, reference to what she's, she'd grab my hand, like, stuff it up her shirt, we'll walk in, like, but, like, up or under her coat, she couldn't really see, or, like, down her, like, put it down her skirt, and only to have me realize that she wasn't wearing any underwear, like, fun, you know, like, fun stuff, walking around, like, um, and then like, at one point, we're, I don't know. And, um, but she was always so straight-faced about it. Like, it was like nothing was happening. But you, Or we were making mango salsa artifacts. The whole, you know, dinner we were doing. And, like, you know, I like mangoes. I really like mangoes. I really like mangoes now because of what happened after that. She, she, she had to rub the mango against my cheek. And then she goes, Russell, get in the bedroom right now and take off your pants. She waits two seconds and says, did I instruct you to hesitate? And then, what happened with that mango peel? Well, I mean, it was great. I'm not gonna have to go into too much detail, but. I'm gonna leave some to your imagination here, right? But I was hesitant about what we all call the big event. The big event was something that I was hesitant about, and I'll unpack a couple of reasons. I came from a very religious background, like a, like a, a kind of Protestant evangelical background, but even like I remember my mom. I overheard my mom. My mom raised three boys. She go, and she, I remember her saying to somebody like, you know, if I had my way raising these three boys, these boys would never see what was inside their underwear until they were grown up and after eighteen. I was like, <laughs> or my brother said, you know, Russell, you know, I know that in the scripture, you know, it says you're supposed to be married before you make love, but uh, Marie and I, we made it to six months. But then we just couldn't help ourselves. I'm like, okay, six months. Like, it's all going in. And my dad, early on, it started like, I mean, he didn't want me to date until I was 16. There was all these injunctions about dating and keeping it. He's like, Russell, if I were you in this day and age, I would just abstain, abstain, abstain. <laughs> so I had three options there. It was good. <laughs> now, the best was, well, I went down to, to visit with my grandparents. My grandfather squeaks his way across the, um, the floor in his old wheelchair, and he almost like pins me to the wall with these steely blue eyes. I'm like a freshman in college. Rusty, when I was your age, I was out with my uncle one night, and we were drinking ourselves some beers, playing ourselves some cards, and then we were having ourselves a pretty good time, and then at the end of that, my, my uncle arranged for me to be driven home by a a loose woman. 
a woman who would uh, put out. And we're driving down that country road, Rusty. And she pulls over to the side of that road and she turns off that car, Rusty. And she turns to me with a, a come-hither look in her eye. And slowly she brings her hand up and she pulls her blouse down and she reveals her breast to me. Rusty, I came right there in my pants. Rusty, on that night, the Lord protected me. He protected me from sin, Rusty. From sin. So I hesitate when it comes to the big event. But you know, everybody's got a different love map, right? And like, I'm like, do everything, whatever, like look at the cliff. And like, Anna didn't have that same love map, right? She wanted to have fallen down that cliff already a long time ago. And I hesitated. And she was patient. And she was patient. And then she wasn't quite so patient. And she got a little impatient. And then she got a little irritated. And, like, and things are like kind of getting to be a little like, oh, fuck. Like, but the six-month mark is up. Somewhere in the back of my brain, I'm like, oh, six-month. Maybe that's like, when the fuck do you actually consciously fucking decide to have sex? Like, what a stupid idea to consciously decide. I don't know what the fuck. Anyway, but I had somewhere in my brain consciously decided, like, okay, it's going to be a six-month anniversary. I got, like, I got ourselves a, like, a, a nice hotel in the Wyndham Suites on Boston Common, and I, I arranged for, like, this great, like, this vegan um, Thai restaurant, like, up in what used to be the combat zone back in the day, but, like, vegan, up on the, on the thing. Walking around Boston Common all day, we saw like the swan boats. You ever fucking been in like a small space when someone's fucking pissed at you? <laughs> fucking swan boats and like there's like a, she's like not into it. She's like, we can't even hold hands right. Like there's, our relationship stinks. Like I can't fucking believe it. Like I'm fucking agitated all the time. She's saying, you know, Russell, like we've been together six months. You have never given me one orgasm. Which was true, man. It was. It's not the way our love maps intersected. Fuck, man. I felt like shit, but like, but I had this plan, man. Like, we got back up. You know, I'm like, you know, and she was wearing this like, she wore these like uh, sailors like tops, like those uh, like black and white stripes, and they set off her fiery red hair. And I'm like, if we could just get back up to the hotel room, Anna, well, I, I'll show you what I know, what you want, and I'm gonna. So we finally get up there fucking fighting all day and we start to make out a little bit and I'm like, okay, we're going somewhere and I had just sort of just managed to get her bra off and I pushed her onto the bed and I was about to climb on top of her and I was really ready for hot sex and then I just felt hot, sticky in my green boxer shorts that I'd worn just for the occasion here and I fucking sank, you know, and Anna, to her credit, she's, you know, she just, she grabbed me, she pulled me down to her and she said, Russell, I love you. And she kind of stroked my head and like we went to sleep. But like the maggots of shame started to eat every intestine in my body for the rest of that night. And that began like this cycle, this cycle of like, you know, Russell hesitates and then she gets irritated. And then like, 
and then like it just set up this expectation that like when we started getting groovy like, it wasn't going to work out I was tense she was getting tense that it was going to work out and then like 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 clockwork I had the Lord's protection <laughs> over and over and over again until eventually it started to gnaw away the fantastic groovy and like do whatever is clever part of our relationship until we weren't really doing anything I'm like fuck man this is I love being with Anna, she's so funny, and we're getting a lot of work done. Like she's working on her, you know, her Martha Graham stuff. She did this, like, you know, while we're together. We moved in in the, in the interim, by the way. Like we got this shitty tenement apartment in Central Square, but like shit was not happening right anymore. Like, you know, near the combat zone, there was this little red light district. I wandered in there, and like this guy's like reading his physics book. He's like selling stuff out of this little red light shop with all the porn. And I'm like, I need some cream. He's like, you know, he looks up from his engineering textbook. He's like, you know, take this cream. This is the good stuff. The cream didn't do shit for. Uh, like, the fucking creams, Jesus. And so, so, and things are getting testy between us. I'm like, fuck it, man. So I find, I go, you know, I had insurance at the time, thank God. So I called up, and I shit you not, the sex therapist that we got was doctor, you know, there's a lot of people of uh, uh, French-Canadian descent who settled in Massachusetts. I got Dr. Brando, B-R-A-N-D-E-A-U-X, Dr. Brando, Doctor, I fucking shit you not, Dr. Marlon Brando <laughs> was our sex therapist. So we sit down at the first, the, the, first, um, the first meeting. He goes, you know, Russell, has anybody ever told you that he have an unusually large penis? I said, no. And then he says to Anna, Anna, has anyone ever told you that he have like a, like a super tight pussy? And she goes, no. He's like, well, then you should go home, the both of you, drink a glass of wine, and have a lot of bad sex. Like, this can work. But we let him understand, like, the tension had grown so much in our relationship. He's like, okay, like, just in the tone of her voice, like, I'm like, Dr. Brando, I'm not sure that you understand what's going on. Like, a lot of tension. He's like, okay, all right, all right. He says, you gotta masturbate more. You gotta get yourself some pornography and, like, work on, you know, like, the problem with, with the, the premature ejaculation is like, imagine you get yourself a big bag of apples in a, in a um, paper sack, right, from the grocery store, like big old bag of apples. You wanna run home, you gotta slice up all those apples and make a fucking fantastic pie. You're going home with this bag of apples, but it starts to rain right before you get inside the house, the bag gets wet, and they all tumble down to the ground. Like, bef- what the fuck is my apple pie? It's gone. He's like, you gotta work, or like when you're about to sneeze, right? Like, ah, 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 and there's that really almost excruciatingly pleasurable feeling before you sneeze. You're like, that's the spot where you wanna be. So, like, go get yourself some pornography and start working on that. Be in that space, that space right before, right? You gotta slam the door, but right before you slam the door. Work on that space. Be in that mode. All right. So I go down to the newsstand in Central Square, and I'm getting like, it was a penthouse. I got the Playboy right there, and the Maxim, and the. Dr. Randall's like, drink a glass of wine, take a hot shower together, and do a massage. Well, at this point, it's like fucking almost Hanukkah, Christmas, that good stuff. Like, in our Central Square car, and it's fucking cold. We don't want to do the massage. He's like, well, get some pornography and watch it together. So, you know, like, in the early 90s, these shitty video stores in Central Square, like, all you got is like, the, the stuff left over from the 80s with the poofy hair, and like, <laughs> she's not into the mise-en-scene. I don't like the editing. He's like, you, <laughs> You gotta do then like m- parallel masturbation, okay? Can you handle that? I'm like, 
So like, so she's there trying to dial O, and I'm like, I'm on the other side of the bed, and we're watching this people with the poofy me, like, and I'm trying to bring myself to climax, and like, but I'm like making these noises that she doesn't like. She's sensitive to noise, like that's not working. And kind of hearing my yips of pleasure like turns her off, like that's not working. So fuck, man. Like at one point, I go down to the, you know one of these really super earnest plate, like sex positive, like sex toys stores, like I don't know, like the um, the Treasure Trail. You remember the Treasure? I mean, God bless her. Oh my God, bless her. Very earnest woman with like with eight earrings here and six here and like four nose rings, and she's like, "Yeah, okay." I'm like, "Yeah, I need to, like my member's not working. I want to like, but I want to pleasure my woman. But like, you know, I'm concerned about my." It's like, oh yeah, you know, you need like like a strap on. Like, do you want like pink or like like an army green? Yeah, probably. No, the strap. You know, and she helped me try it on. Like. I very like and never once like she never like went I was like it was thank God like I got that that didn't go over so well either she's like well I want you but you can't like we, you know because we didn't have a fucking plan B or a plan C somehow the way our love maps collided like it had gone so long like we were either gonna have it the big event or like we weren't gonna have anything and there was no plan like hey let's relax and have another glass of wine and like I don't know like there was no plan B. What it turned out was disappointment, embarrassment, more maggots of shame, and then eventually that erupted into fights, and that, like, fuck. It just didn't go. And at one point, I'm like, you know, we're still having fun. You know, she would do these crazy, like, um, like imagine, like, a pin-up picture of a, of a, a young woman on a, on a train in the 1950s, but she would do this whole animated dance before I went out the door, like, do-do-do-do-do, boop-boop, and she would flash me on the way out the door, and, but in the morning, we'd be all twisted up, you know? It was always nice to wake up twisted up in the morning, like, all kind of cozied up. But in the meantime, you know, about two-thirds of our relationship was that fun, but, like, one-third of it ended up being sort of like the trenches of World War I after these misfired sexual enterprises, so... In the end, so much water had flowed under that bridge that, like, um, Anna and I finally parted ways. But all that time that we spent with Dr. Brando helped us do in a very, like, positive, like, we still remained friends for a long time. I'm happy to say that, like, we both ended up in a relationship where we were quite fulfilled. And, um, you know, think about, like, the sexual liberation of the 1960s or whatever. Like, liberation is love your body, love who you're with, and, like... You know, if it doesn't work so well one night, relax, drink your glass of wine, try it again. Like, it's going to be okay. You're having sex. What's not to love, right? Be like a kid in a candy shop. So go get some candy. Thank you very much. Risk. This is Khalid behind me now, and we just heard from Russell Chandler. Before that, a story by Tracy Starin 
a little anecdote that Tracy shared with us. We still invite your anecdotes, whether they be about, you know, things that happened before or things that happened during this period we're going through now. Uh, they're usually about three minutes and 30 seconds or a little bit less. You can email me if you have any questions about how to record one of those of your own. I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. And even if you have yet to get to a Risk live stream show, you can pitch us <laughs> to possibly be a part of one. If you pitch us at pitches at risk-show.com, if you actually go to risk-show.com slash submissions, there's a lot of tips on how to prep a pitch for us but yeah we are we, i mean we can take people from all over the world now doing these live streams so no matter where you are you could be cast in one of these shows remember the next one is may 1st that's friday may 1st at 9 p.m and you can always find the tickets at risk-show.com tour Let's get back to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear one that was first shared. I forget which city this was recorded in. <laughs> I think it was Seattle. Uh, this was Ruby Tuesday, who shared the story we're going to hear soon. But before that, an anecdote that was sent in to us by Jade Ashton. Remember... If you go to the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group, there's a post there that's pinned, and it explains how you can work on your own anecdotes to send us right now. In the meantime, here is Jade Ashton with a story we call Packing. Catch me up night. Catch me Night after night, I would awake anxious after yet another one of what I like to call my packing dreams. So this is a recurring theme for me. There'll be some stressful uncertainty, like I don't know where I'm going, I don't know when the flight is leaving, or anything. But there was a new sense of urgency to these dreams, like I was packing for survival. I have cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic condition, making me really susceptible to catching recurrent, eventually deadly, lung infections. And that's bacteria, viruses, you name it. And these things are everywhere. I've managed to avoid living in constant fear of every surface, every cough, despite being aware of other people with CF having to have lung transplants or sadly passing away. But I, I always had the attitude of, you know, I'm, I'm different to these people, I'm healthy. I exercise, I adhere to treatment, you know, I have nothing to fear. I like to keep my medicines really organized in a top cupboard in my kitchen, but whatever threat was facing me in my dreams was making my dream self swipe the entire contents of this cupboard into a suitcase and praying that it would be enough to last. So with my almost blasé attitude, when the first news of this new respiratory virus emerged, I really wasn't concerned but my dad 
who has had premonition dreams since he was a child had one dream before all of this started that really got his attention. Um, in, in the dream, he was standing on top of a tall residential building looking out across a city. And he knew that there was this sense of threat from the east. Um, but he was skeptical, you know, the threat seemed so distant. But as he was following the trail of three passenger planes heading out towards the east, he saw that abruptly in midair, they all started heading back in his direction. And he knew then that the threat was real. Everything happened so quickly for me, starting with me being requested to work from home after an interrailing trip around Europe, which I thought was a total overreaction at the time. But then suddenly everyone was working at home and planes were literally turning round in midair as borders were closing. Then it was announced that the government wanted vulnerable people, people like me, to stay at home for 12 weeks keeping two meters away from everyone that I lived with and in a small city center flat with my boyfriend and our flatmate and no access to fresh air, it just wasn't possible for me to be safe. So I moved back to my parents' house and that's where I am now. I miss having physical contact with literally anyone already and I've completely lost that false attitude of you know being above everything and being safe but as I was packing to come here and um, swiping all of my medicines into a suitcase it hit me you know the the world is going to have changed so drastically by the time I can get out of here and maybe in that sense my dream is coming true My husband proposed to me on an empty beach in one of the windiest places on earth. And he stopped and turned to me while we were walking and he presented me with a shell that he had found that looked like a ring and he had hid it in his pocket and was waiting to stop me. And he turned to me and he said, will you spend your life with me? And I didn't know him for very long and we'd only been dating for about a year. I met him when I was studying abroad in Tokyo. And when I first moved to Tokyo, I moved um, from a very small town and I was too overwhelmed at first to even leave my apartment and go right on the train. So for the first few days, I just sat inside and I painted um, watercolors on pieces of printer paper. I painted Godzilla fighting a volcano and Godzilla landing on the moon <laughs> and Godzilla riding a bicycle with a lobster and an eggplant <laughs> to get away from a volcano. And they weren't good. Um, they <laughs> were, I did them pretty quickly. Um, but I put them all over my walls because I needed something to come home to when I went out into that big city and for it to feel like my home. When he first came into my apartment, 
his eyes danced from painting to painting. And he looked at me, he said, you did these? And I have always made weird things, uh, but this is the first time that somebody I wanted to date actually appreciated them. I tended to like tone that stuff down, but I didn't have to with him. Uh, I married him when I was 22, and his job meant that we had to move countries every two years. So every two years, I would start a new career. I was a translator, a swimming teacher, I worked for embassies, and every few years we would have to make new friends and find new favorite places and start over again, um, again and again together. And one time we were at a fundraiser in Seoul and there was a band and there was dancing and everyone else in the room was just kind of standing and swaying politely. And we were flailing around. We were doing all of these dips and turns and what I can only describe as a trust fall. <laughs> Many trust falls. And as we were doing this, this man came up to me and he looked important and he looked like maybe he was going to kick us out or ask us to tone it down. But he came up to me and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, never stop dancing like that. <laughs> ever. And in many places, uh, we hosted this murder mystery party that I wrote where every character in the mystery was Nicolas Cage, but from a different movie. <laughs> it's surprisingly robust and complicated. Um, there's a lot of room for plot. And he... Well, he, knew the, he knew the answer, he knew the murder mystery, so he would always be the victim. And he would die this like, just magnificent, dramatic death to start off the party. And then he would come back as a ghost. And then he would come back as John Travolta. <laughs> and everywhere we went, we had this reputation of this cool, this quirky international couple but that's not what it was really like to live with him. In Japan, one day, under so many cherry blossoms that the sky looked pink above us, he was angry at me because I disagreed with a friend who had disagreed with him. And he, we were surrounded by people, but none of them seemed to notice as he stood and he shouted at me, I will divorce you and I will take away your visa and then where will you be? And he ran into the crowd and he disappeared and I looked for him and I couldn't find him. And hours later, I found him at home, lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. And I told him that I had been worried and he said, you can't control me, I can go where I want to go. And I told him that I was hurt, and he said, I disagree. And then he looked back up at the ceiling and he kind of smiled and then he closed his eyes and he said, deal with it. And later in Senegal, he was angry at a friend who wasn't texting him back, so he started sending nasty texts to this friend. And I, like, he was drunk, and I, didn't, I knew that he cared about that friendship, so I tried to take away the phone. 
and he yelled at me, you can't tell me what to do. And he ran up to the front of the house and he kicked our car. He tried to drive it, but he had been drinking, so I took the keys and I ran home, because it wasn't very far, it was only a few blocks. And I got home before he did, and I ran into the house and I locked myself into the safe room. Because some of the countries we lived were dangerous, a lot of them had safe rooms and really good locks, but I never used those to protect myself from the countries. And he was outside the door, and he was banging on it, and he was yelling, this is my house, that is my bed in there, and I will sleep where I want to sleep. And then silence, and then a piece of paper slipped under the door and written on it, it said, pack your bags, you're leaving in the morning. And the next morning I sat across the table from him in a painful negotiation for an apology because I had to prove to him that I deserved an apology, that my feelings deserved attention or to be recognized. And he always had this burden of proof that I could never meet. And as I laid out my case, he would correct my grammar. He would say, why are you so obsessed with apologies? They're just words. Why is it so important to you? And this time, one of the only times, one of maybe three times in 13 years, he actually apologized. And when I watched him do it, it looked like the words were physically choking him. Like a tumor was moving up his throat and out his mouth, and when it came out, it had teeth and hair. And he said, fine, you win. I'm sorry, you happy now? But in between all of those outbursts, we had a life together. We made decisions together. I made art that we put on our walls that he loved. We decided what country to go to next. He decided to take a break from postings so that I could go to grad school so I could get an MBA. And when I got my first corporate job, he uh, moved here to Seattle with me. He supported me while I you know, changed careers, while I, I learned new skills. And as I did this new corporate job, I balanced it with storytelling and comedy. And I did these weird performances and I made these weird shows. I made this apocalyptic bingo show with a live band and I dressed up as a skeleton and I danced with a, like a human-sized Halloween skeleton and I ate a hot dog through a fish mask and I did all of these things <laughs> that made me feel really good. And you know, he was part of helping me get there. But... The more confident I got and the more I built this life for myself, the more I saw this gap and felt this heaviness of how I felt with him and how I felt by myself or with friends or with coworkers or on stages. I told him I wanted to leave and he promised to go to therapy and he did. So I waited. And it seemed to help him. He went on medication. He seemed to be getting 
better, there were fewer outbursts. And that note that he slid under the door in Senegal, I had saved it. I had saved it for years because it was the only proof I had of how I was being treated. And I took it and I burnt it in front of him because I wanted to show that I believed that he could change and I wanted to show how much I was willing to forgive him. If he could just treat me with respect, I could forget everything and we could move forward with the parts of our relationship that were good, that I wanted to keep. And the outburst still happened, not as frequent, but in between them he was grumpier, but it didn't seem to be as directed towards me as it was before. And then he got a relocation to India and I wasn't sure if I was going to go, but we had always wanted to live there together. We'd always talked about it. And he was getting help, and he seemed to be making some progress. And I thought maybe a new start could help. But a couple of months into it, I woke up at 2 a.m., and he was in the bed next to me and he had pushed himself into this unnatural push-up, like his arms were bending away. I didn't think they could bend. And he was making direct eye contact with the wall and talking to it and saying, get in line, get them in line with this dead authority. So I woke him up and I told him I was scared. He looked at me and he laughed with this just cruel, empty laughter and then turned back around and went to sleep. So I went into the guest room and I locked myself in and I didn't sleep at all. I stayed up all night. I felt almost supernatural, like I was haunting the room. And the next morning he came out in a suit for work and I thought that maybe when he laughed he was still sleeping. So I tried to talk to him about it, but he doubled down. He said, I laughed because I thought it was hilarious that you were scared. And when I told him I didn't sleep, he said, and it's ridiculous that you didn't sleep. And then he went to work and it was like a cord had been cut. Like this little voice inside of me that had been saying, it's not so bad, he supported you, now you be there for him. That voice just shut up. I never heard it again. And instead, I just knew I had this clarity, like this is it, I don't know why this is it, but this is the last thing and it's time to leave. He came home that evening and I told him, and I know that you're not supposed to tell them, I know that when you're about to leave, that's when they're most likely to get violent. But I knew that if I left without telling him that he would lash out and that the divorce would be hard. And he was always better if he believed we were on the same side. So when I told him I was very kind, I didn't blame him. I told him that I wanted us to start over with the best possible lives for each other, separately. And he was upset, but he wasn't angry, and he didn't have an outburst or lash out. He said, I don't think people will think I'm interesting without you. 
And I had to stay in India for three months while I did the paperwork and everything I needed to be able to leave and to send my things. Those three months were really difficult. I got really sick. There were fireworks every night and all night, and I had an allergic reaction to the smoke, so I couldn't breathe. And if I tried to lay down, I couldn't stop coughing. So I wasn't really sleeping, and I had lost my voice mostly. And I'd found this uh, domestic violence international helpline, and they assigned me a caseworker. And the caseworker, who I would call while he was at work, said things like, you're almost out, keep him calm, don't rock the boat. So for three months, every morning I woke up, and my only goal was don't rock the boat. So I created the reality that he wanted. I didn't blame him for anything. Nothing was his fault. I didn't call him on any of his behavior. No need for apologies. And I didn't talk about what I was looking forward to, and I didn't let him see me pack. And it worked. He stayed pretty calm, and we even had like some nice discussions and watched shows together, even traveled together. But the whole time, the person that I had to be to keep things calm, I really hated. I was like this cardboard cutout of myself. And then the day that I left finally arrived and we spent the day together and it was pleasant. We were nice to each other, but I kept my passport in my back pocket and I always positioned myself between him and the door. But I didn't have to use any of my escape plans. He actually carried my bags to the car for me. And when I got in, I was in the backseat of the cab and I started texting my caseworker and my friends who knew that I was leaving and why and texting, I'm safe, I'm out, I'm going to the airport. And it felt like pieces were falling off of the car, that we were getting faster and lighter and that we might just fly and I won't even have to get onto an airplane. And when I finally landed in Seattle, I got into a rental car and I drove straight to a support group. And it was three hours after I landed, but I was in a room with women who had been through the exact same thing that I had. And I came there ready to prove that I had been hurt, to prove that what he did was real. Because whenever I would call him on his behavior, he would say something like, can you even imagine yourself in a group for battered women and telling them about me? They would laugh at you. They'd say, what are you talking about? That's not abuse. But I didn't have to prove anything. I just had to sit down and introduce myself. Kai, I'm Ruby. I was with him for 13 years. I left him this morning, and now there are two oceans in between us. And I thought it was going to be really difficult, but it wasn't. Going to sleep was easy. It was like I had like part mattress in my DNA. <laughs> Waking up was incredible. Every single morning just felt like better than the last day. And 
it felt like every single day was made just for me and had 30 hours in it because I wasn't spending time trying to figure out like why he was acting that way or choosing my every word so I didn't like step on one of his triggers. Like All of my time was for me. I remember like when I was with him and I would come home, my steps would get really slow as I got towards my door because I was giving myself extra time to mentally prepare for what kind of mood he might get into. When I came back here and when I had my own apartment, every time I opened the door, I would see a mirror that was across from my front door. So every time I came home, I would see myself opening that door into a place that was safe and free and joyful. When I started unpacking my stuff into this new apartment um, from the luggage that you know, I had hidden as I was packing, um, there wasn't very many useful things in there. There weren't very many clothes for work or sweaters or anything appropriate for the weather. There was a rubber chicken and a snake puppet and so many costumes and an inflatable T-Rex and severed Halloween hands and um, a horn that I don't even know where I got it. And I'm looking at all of these things and it's like that cardboard version of me who packed all of this stuff was like, hey, you are going to need both a ghost costume and a Ghostbusters costume for your new life. (laughs) And so I was really excited to get back to making things and creating and performing. So I took all of those items that were in my bag, all of these like strange things, and I turned them into a pop-up museum that I brought with me to my friend's variety show. And I made labels for everything, and I divided them up into sections. There's like the geopolitical section, and the costume section, and the fish-related items section. Um, an inflatable T-Rex like came on stage with someone in it and I was like shooting off confetti. I invited the entire audience to come on stage and to tour the museum and to go around and to participate in the interactive exhibits and I like sat back and watched as all of these people were going through these things that I had decided to bring with me and I realized that for, for 13 years I, in between those outbursts, I had created a life for myself. I had been creating things. I had been making art. I had been doing really cool things. And it took so much energy and time because I didn't have much of it. When I left, I got to take all of that with me. And I got to keep it. And this lightness and this ease that I had been feeling was because I could finally be alone with everything I had built for myself and I could enjoy it without being hindered. And the sense of euphoria that would just rush through my body, that was because I knew how much more time and energy I had ahead of me to make even more of it. And so I closed the museum, it was only open for 10 minutes, and I packed (laughs) 
This is a quick one. Um, I packed everything into my suitcase, and I rolled it back to my apartment, and I like, saw myself open the door with like all of these things that like, were important enough to bring with me to not be away from for even one day. And I had painted Museum of Essential Items in big letters directly on my suitcase because the museum needed a sign and I didn't want to use anything that wasn't in my luggage. I didn't want to introduce a big cardboard sheet because that would be wrong. So I painted it right on the luggage and as I was painting it, I was like, do I really want to ruin this suitcase? But I thought that this like, sense of lightness and euphoria eventually it's going to end and it's going to become normal. The suitcase is really big, so I only use it if I need to carry a lot or if I'm making a big change. And the next time that I do that, I want to be reminded of what I did to leave and what I did to give myself this new life. And I want to look at it and know that I know what is essential, I know what to fight for, I know what to bring with me, and I know what to leave behind. But we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been, and we know That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is David Byrne behind me now from his recent Broadway show, American Utopia, a song that was suggested by Ruby Tuesday, who we just heard. And before that, we heard a little anecdote from Jade Ashton, who is a Risk fan, who heard us calling out for anecdotes. Don't forget, if you go to the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group, there's a pinned post there telling you how to send us your anecdotes. Folks, right now, one of the most crucial things for us is to try to get as many people as possible coming to see our Risk live stream shows and... I'm not lying when I say that they're absolutely wonderful to see. 
I have been like after a risk live stream, I find myself so amped up, so inspired, so I don't know. I, I feel so much more connected. <laughs> uh, sorry. <clears throat> I was saying I feel so much more connected <laughs> after one of the live streams. And our next one is May 1st at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This is going to be a fascinating show. We have Nima Karazi, Judith Hertog, Jamie Brickhouse, and Ellie Dworkin. A few people there we've wanted to get on for the longest time. And Jamie Brickhouse has told countless amazing stories on the show before. So a great lineup once again. May 1st, 9 p.m. You go to risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets and tell your friends. Tell your friends they should be checking out these live streams as well. Folks, head on over to cameo.com slash thekevinallison. C-A-M-E-O dot com slash thekevinallison. You can get a personalized video message from me. It can be as absolutely absurd or as serious and sincere for fans of the state or fans of risk or whatever kinky folk i can send you a very fun lovely little greeting personalized to you or to someone you love over at cameo.com i'm having so much fun making these things and if you'd like something more than just a short little message, if you'd like to sit down with me and talk for a half hour or an hour one-on-one -on -one, where we can both see and hear each other about storytelling or uh, a podcast you're working on or a memoir or a solo show or anything like that or, you know, mentoring around BDSM and kink or just, you know, creative mentoring in general, go to kevinallison.com and set up a little session, a little consultation with me. I'm loving doing that as well. And for official storytelling classes, don't forget our online classes at thestorystudio.org are wonderfully successful and an amazing way to get not just our fantastic faculty members' perspectives on storytelling, the people who coach, the people you hear on risk, but also your fellow classmates. You can see and hear your fellow classmates sharing their stories and giving feedback. Lots of online classes are available at thestorystudio.org. And if you have a business or if you work for a business and are interested in a corporate workshop, we also have those available at thestorystudio.org. Tremendously effective for team building, for morale boosting, for helping everyone on your staff stay connected and learn how to communicate more humanly, more compellingly about the projects you're working on. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
after a risk live stream, I find myself so amped up, so inspired, so I don't know. I feel so much more connected. 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 I feel so much more connected.